0: You'll find the notes in the bulletin, Luke chapter what, 12. And, and this morning, we are going to continue Jesus' discourse that began at the beginning of chapter 12, you remember. Um, he had just had a confrontation in the home of a Pharisee. He'd pronounced woes upon the Pharisees, woes upon the lawyers. And leaving there, the escalation of the conflict between him and the Jewish leaders had reached a peak. They were hunting him, trying to trap him. And Jesus also ups the ante and on his end, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 12 in verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And, and Jesus warns them of that, to tells them to prepare The persecution that is coming as the conflict between him and the religious leaders of Israel um, escalates further, um, people have to choose sides. Um, There will be um, violence. There will be um, suffering. And then, um, cueing off of a, a voice from the crowd, Jesus warns His disciples of a second danger. The first, the danger of, of not persevering through persecution, of, of not confessing Christ before men. The second is the danger of money and possessions. And then he, he warned His disciples, and we saw this last week, on the need to be watchful, the need to be faithful. We looked at the three examples of, of the stewards The household slaves who would receive either the blessing when the master returned of having the master gird up his loins and serve them at his feast, the master giving them greater authority, or in, in the case of the disobedient and rebellious slaves, being cut into pieces, being beaten severely. And so Jesus has warned His disciples about the dangers that they face, the dangers that will likely cause them to fall away. He has put the carrot and the stick out. The carrot, the the three times blessing is announced last week. Blessedness for being awake and alert. Blessedness for being faithful with the duties that God has given you. And the warnings of the disobedient or the ignorant or the careless servant. Well, Jesus now, I think, keying off of this view of His return, um, issues this next statement. And it's, and it's kind of shocking. When we think of the question, why did Jesus come? Why did, why did Jesus come into the world? There are a number of answers that can come to our minds. In fact, the Scriptures answer this question in a number of ways. But I think there are certain answers the Scripture gives, certain themes of Christ's coming that we minimize... Or ignore. These are not themes that I generally hear in gospel presentations. These are not general truths. We can sort of, by overemphasizing certain truths and ignoring other truths, we can actually paint an inaccurate picture. I, I was listening to a sermon of Pastor Daniels from a few years ago where he said, A half truth presented as a whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And so we can so emphasize the question why did Jesus come? He came for peace. He came to save us. He came to show God's love. He came to identify with us and be one of us. Amen. 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 But if those are the only notes of the chord that we strike, we, we will get an inaccurate picture. And it sort of leads to the sort of the, the, the sissified Jesus who's just his heart's breaking, and that's it. Now look at Jesus' statement for why He came in this text. And again, this text is not the whole reason why Jesus came. But Jesus will say twice in this passage why He came. And this needs to fit into our understanding. It needs to fit into our concept of who He is and why He has come to stretch and challenge us from overly simplistic um, platitudes. So let's read verses 49 to 53. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's a a challenging paragraph. Twice we see Jesus state purpose in coming. In, In the first verse, He came to cast fire on the earth. And then in verse 51, do you think that I've come to give peace? No, I tell you, but rather division. Jesus says plainly, I came to cast fire in the earth. I came to cause division, not peace. Now, that's not the whole story of why Jesus came, admittedly. But that is a true story, and it needs to fit into our understanding of who He is. We need to realize that, that Jesus is, and we should expect this, a bit more complex, bit more nuanced than we're used to and he, he, he doesn't fit a simple mold and here as he pours out his heart he, he speaks to his purpose in coming and we're going to look at this in three points i titled this peace not peace but division not peace but division and begins jesus in uh, verse 49 i came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled And the first point we see here is that Jesus came to bring judgment. Jesus came to bring judgment. Now, I asked you a moment or two ago to think about how you might answer, why did Jesus come? And the Scriptures do give a number of answers. I'll read some of these. Matthew 5, 7, I've come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus comes to fulfill Scripture. Scripture. Matthew 9.13, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to call sinners. We already saw in Luke 5.32, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. John 5.43, I've come in my Father's name. Jesus comes authorized because his Father has sent him. Why did Jesus come? He came because his Father sent him. John 6.38, for I've come down from heaven not on my own will, but, but the will who sent me. Jesus comes as an as a obedient son, as an ambassador on another's business. And these are some of the next ones, some of the ones we cherish the most. John 10.10, 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life, have it abundantly. Why did Jesus came? He, he came so that we could have life and have it abundantly. John 12.27 Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus came to die on the cross. John 12, 46. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Why did Jesus come? He came to give light and understanding so that those who believe in him could be saved. And Jesus, standing before Pilate in John 18, Pilate said to him, so are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now those are some biblical answers for why Jesus has come. But in addition to those that we feel much more comfortable with, stands our text before us and some other texts like Matthew 10 Thirty-four to thirty-five. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Or John nine thirty-nine. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. See, it's not as simple as one answer for why Jesus came. So again, this is not the whole story. This is not the only reason why Jesus came, but it is a reason, and it needs to fit into our understanding of who He is, what His mission is. So Jesus came to bring judgment. Jesus came to bring judgment. Now I think the reason He goes here is for two reasons. One, He's just been talking about the recompense or the judgment that will be given to the various household slaves. Whether it's the, the blessing of, of being served by the Messiah, being called a faithful steward, of being set over the whole house, or whether it's being vivisected, beaten severely, a, a verdict, a judgment is being rendered. I think another reason why Jesus brings this up is to make it clear that the coming conflict that even now is escalating is no accident, no mistake. He came for this conflict, He came for this fight. This is not a failure. Oops. No, rather Jesus came to cast fire on the earth. Now that fire, if you turn back to John 3, I think is clearly a picture of wrath. Fire is a picture of divine wrath. All throughout the Old Testament, God sends fire as a judgment, but in Luke itself, we get the the answer to this metaphor. What does it mean, fire? We get it from the mouth of John the Baptist. We're dunking John, as I like to refer to him. John the Immerser. In Luke 3, verse 9, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's destroyed, it's devoured, it's consumed. Verse 16 in 17, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So Jesus comes, and he divides men, and he gathers his wheat. He gathers his people. Those are the ones he baptizes with his Holy Spirit. And everyone else gets immersed with fire, destroyed, devoured. It's a picture of divine wrath and judgment. And Jesus says that's why he came. He came, we, we celebrate this, to save his people, but he also came to judge the rebels came to judge the rebels. Jesus is also intent not only on saving his people, but he is also intent on judging his enemies. And we and we, we misrepresent the Lord when we think of him. And I've heard um, s- some televangelists speak of him as in heaven, you know, not wanting, like we're twisting his arm behind his back. Don't, don't make me judge you. Don't make me punish you. Please don't. Look at what he says here. I came to cast fire on the earth. Not only that, but would that it were already kindled. He's impatient. He's desiring it to happen soon, which also means it isn't happening yet. Jesus came to do this, but it's not the fundamental purpose of his first coming And here what Jesus is doing is is linking together his entire mission for the Father, his first coming and his second coming. We've just been looking as he goes through the the three parables of the three household slaves about his second coming. And so you're blank here in point B. Jesus' first coming makes possible his second. Jesus' first coming makes possible the second. That's clear from the grammar here. He has come to cast fire on the earth. It isn't lit yet. He wants it to be lit. He wants this judgment, but it isn't here yet. It isn't here yet. Why is that? Because according to Matthew 28.18, it's the beginning of what we know as the Great Commission, by virtue of Jesus' death and resurrection, He is able to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. And it's by virtue of that authority that Jesus returns to claim His inheritance and he has written on the inside of his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he comes with, as it were, the title deed for the planet Earth to render out judgment, to render out wrath. And so his first coming makes way possible for the second coming. And Jesus is viewing then his first coming in this, in this line, and this continuity of where we're headed. In his first coming, he comes and he becomes a man and he lives among us, and He bears our weakness and infirmity. He dies on the cross for our sins. He raises from the dead by virtue of that death, burial, resurrection. He is given the name that is above every name, and by virtue of that authority, He will return to judge the world in righteousness. And make no mistake, He is eager to do that. He is eager to do that. That's our third point. He greatly desires the fire to be kindled. He greatly desires the fire to be kindled. And this is something we can struggle with because we know that God loves. God is love. We know that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. My men's group are going through Ezekiel. We just went through that passage. God is no sadist who gets joy out of pain of others. But I think a, a good analogy to picture this is think of a, a judge um, uh, uh, who regularly sentences criminals to jail. And he can say, legitimately, I take no pleasure in the pain these men will suffer. I take no pleasure um, when I have to send a man for execution. But I delight in justice being done. And I sleep like a baby at night knowing that that what I do is right and just and fitting and proper. He's able to say simultaneously, I feel sorrow for these men. I, I wish they wouldn't commit crimes. And I... Do not hesitate to do what is right and to meter out the just punishment. So Jesus will weep over Jerusalem. He will call men to himself. He does care. He does have compassion. He does long for his people. And yet, when the time comes to render out judgment, he will not flinch. He will not hesitate. He will not do it with a tear in his eye. He longs to pour out this wrath. Not only that, but, but we will as well. turn to Revelation chapter nine. turn to Revelation chapter nine now i 'll give you a glimpse under the throne of god this isn 't just god 's zeal for judgment and wrath, this is the church 's zeal. One of the things we 're going to see in this passage is, is, is it's fundamentally about loyalty and where your allegiance lies, and when we die and are glorified. Our allegiance will be solely with God. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. He opened the fifth seal. I saw unto the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What are they crying out for vengeance retribution wrath judgment sinless perfected souls in the presence of god are not calling for a stay of execution they are calling out in impatience they are calling out how much longer and i submit if we were there that would be the cry of our hearts as well And, and, and the, the, the great mystery here is that Jesus is accomplishing both, the salvation and the judgment, in, in one fell swoop. Turn, turn to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, Paul, writing to the believers in Thessalonica, weaves these two threads together. Why is Jesus coming back? We ask the question, why did he come the first time? Why is he coming back the second time? And Paul will give a double answer. First Thessalonians 5 first Thessalonians one five sorry actually let's start in verse four therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring Paul is boasting about the church because they are faithfully persevering in afflictions. We already saw that Jesus warning his disciples, they're going to bring you before men, they're going to persecute you, but you need to be faithful to confess. Well, the church at Thessalonica is doing just that, and the apostle Paul is rejoicing. But then he will help interpret their sufferings. Verse 5, this, their sufferings, is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which we are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So notice what he's saying. When Jesus is revealed from heaven, two things happen. We get relief and the rest get affliction. They'll spell out even further. When, his, when he, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. Why is Jesus coming back the second time? To pour out wrath and fury and indignation on those who do not obey the gospel and to comfort, relieve, and be marveled at among those who believe. And he is passionate about both of those missions, not just one. Back Back to Luke 12. There's no other way around it. It's not as though Jesus is reluctant for part of His job and excited about the other. His coming enables salvation. His coming enables judgment. And He is passionate for both. He is passionate for both. He greatly desires the fire to be kindled. Now, this judgment, this wrath, will not come fully until the Lord returns. But even now, the Apostle Paul can point out that God is beginning to to justify, to vindicate some of his people. But ultimately, this fire will not come until the Lord returns. And that's why he says he came. He came to judge the world in righteousness, to pour out the wrath of God on unbelieving men. That's not the only reason he came. That's not the fullness of why he came. It's why he came, though. And we need to make room for that. Secondly, we see another reason why Jesus came. Jesus came to suffer. Jesus came to to suffer. Verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now what is Jesus talking about with this word baptism? Part of the problem is that baptize is one of the words that our translators, and virtually all all translations, translators have chosen not to translate, but to transliterate. What transliterate means is you simply take a foreign word, and you don't say what it means. You just, as best as you can, uh, represent it with the letters of another language. You bring it on over. So if, you, if you're familiar with the foyer or the foyer, it's just a transliterated French word. Baptized, the Greek is baptizo. And so instead of translating, they just brought it over. It means to dip, dunk, immerse. So that when the ship that Paul was on in Acts was sunk, it was baptized, it was immersed. And what Jesus is saying then is I have an immersion. I have to be surrounded by something. I have to be engulfed by something. I have a baptism to be baptized with. How great is my distress until it's accomplished. Now, this is not referencing his baptism by John with water. Why? It's in the past. It's back in Luke 3 and 4 where Jesus is baptized by John. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him. That's not the baptism either because the Spirit descended like a dove, drove him into the wilderness. Now Jesus is referring rather to the cross. The baptism is the cross. Now, in a parallel passage in Mark, this becomes clear. Listen to Mark 10.38. Jesus said to them, because John was asking to share with him, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism in which I am baptized? Now we know the cup that Jesus drinks is the cup of the wrath of God. So Jesus is equating the cup of God's wrath with His baptism. And I think in that light, the picture becomes clear. On the cross, Jesus will be engulfed by completely immersed by no part of him escaping from God's anger and God's wrath. This also is a necessary step on the way to Jesus' second coming. This also is a necessary precursor to Jesus bringing fire to the earth. I think that's the flow of thought. He's longing to come back and be vindicated. He's longing to come back, gather his people, avenge his dignity and honor. But first... Is a baptism to be baptized with, and is a picture of the cross. Listen to Psalm 69 speaking again. This is an Old Testament imagery of God's wrath and displeasure, of, of being drowned. Psalm 69 1 through 2 Save me, O God. For the waters come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters. The flood sweeps over me. Or Jesus, who has already identified himself with Jonah in Luke. Think of Jonah chapter 2. Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. You have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Jesus is using a very vivid metaphor of his own suffering and agony on the cross. And, and this means something that is very profound. Jesus, who is anxious and waiting, anticipating, eager to bring fire on the earth. This Jesus, before He brings divine judgment, He will endure it. Before Jesus brings divine judgment, He will endure it. If it makes you feel any better, Jesus will first drink to the dregs the cup of the wrath of God before He ever pours that wrath out on the earth. He Himself will drink it to the bottom, swallow it up, Colossians 1.19-20 speaks of it this way. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So the first statement, I came to cast fire on the earth, would that it were kindled, leading to another necessary precursor. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And notice what he says here. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. Point C, Jesus greatly desires for it to be finished. The word in the ESV translated as accomplished is, is the same word when Jesus cries out on the cross. It is finished. It's a different form. It's to accomplish, to finish. Jesus wants it to be finished. It's part of why He is so exuberant when it is finally done. It also means that for all of Jesus' life on earth and His ministry, the cross is hanging over His head. It's not just in Gethsemane when Jesus, anticipating the cross, in dread and fear, cries out to the Father, let this cup pass. But rather throughout Jesus' entire life and ministry, He is, what's the ESV say here? He is in great distress. Literally surrounded or pressed in or squeezed, pressured. He longs to come back and be vindicated. He longs to come back and, and judge the earth. And He is in distress until the accomplishment of the cross. Jesus was glad to be here. He came to do his father's will, but there's also a sense in which coming to earth was not pleasant for Jesus. We've already seen hints of that in in Luke. Remember he went up in chapter nine on the mountain and and, and Moses and Elijah were there, and God the Father speaks and he comes down, and the disciples had failed at casting out a demon, and, and they the crowds gather around. And, well, you can you do something about this, Jesus? And what he says there is this So faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you? you guys really are difficult to put up with. And that's true, too. That's true, too. That the Son of Man suffered through his entire lifetime. And he is pressed in and in anguish until it is accomplished. Until it is finished. And I just want to pause. Turn, Turn to Revelation 21. Because... What Jesus seems to have in view here is not just one event in his ministry, not just one thing in his ministry, but the whole course and plan of redemption and reconciliation. Right? Because what he's looking at is this. And each step of the plan he's excited about, except perhaps the cross, which he's in anguish about. He's come for it, make no mistake. That fills him with dread. And he's excited about after the cross... The return, and after the return, gathering up his people. I was, I was working through the, the New Testament, and I came across a passage in Revelation 21 that struck me as, as interesting. So Jesus wants the cross to be finished. And on the cross, when it's done, when the most difficult, painful thing the Son of God would ever endure was done, never to be repeated, he cries out to tell us, die, it is finished! Well, at an equally significant point in redemption history, the father from his throne makes a similar statement. And I want you to see where all this is headed because pouring out wrath isn't the final step either in God's plan. The cross is a step to God's plan. The second coming is a step to God's plan. But look at Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. First 1. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne and said, "Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, "Write this down, for these words are faithful and true." And he said to me, "It is done." So at one key turning point in redemptive history, the Son has finished paying for our sins. He has fully absorbed God's wrath, and He cries out, It is finished! And the Father, upon finally ending death, suffering, judgment, all that's left now is His redeemed Humanity in his presence. I mean, the, the hell is still taking place, but all that we're looking at here is God and his people with no more death, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more shame, no more suffering. And when that finally happens, the father from his throne says something very similar. It is done. This, this is where it's all heading to. This is ultimately where Jesus' first coming, his second coming, the cross, the judgment, is all getting us to is this place. And Jesus is excited to move the program along and to get there. He came for judgment. He also came to suffer. He came to suffer. And that's necessary as well because how else could we be forgiven? How else could there be a people who escape God's wrath? Because we all deserve God's wrath. We all sin. We all inwardly want to do our own thing and go our own way. And so God sends His Son to do what we could never do for ourselves, to to live a sinless life, keeping God's law. After all, Jesus says He came to fulfill the law. He does in His perfect life. He dies on the cross for our sins as our substitute, taking our place. And He's raised again on the third day because He was sinless, because the Father accepted His payment. And now we, we can turn to Him in repentance and faith. We can turn and trust in Him. And we can be forgiven. That, that's the Gospel offer. So Jesus makes this statement. He is, he is excited, passionate about bringing judgment on the earth. And that should frighten you. He will not hesitate. His hand will not stay. His eye will not flinch or pity when that day comes. And and if you are not in Christ, you will receive full measure God's wrath. That fire that devours We poured out on you. But the good news is Jesus came also to suffer so that we could escape that wrath, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could look in faith to Him, trust in Him, and escape that fate. And he, He mentions that too. Third, however, Jesus came to divide. Jesus came to divide. Whereas the fire is yet a ways off. This final reason for Jesus' coming is now present. Look what he says. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What's going on here? And here we have a, a difficulty to deal with in Luke. Because Jesus understands, I think, that what he said in the last two statements about fire and a baptism is going to be somewhat shocking and somewhat confusing to his audience. So when he says to them, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? He knows they have reason to think that. And if you've been reading along in Luke's Gospel, you have reason to think that as well. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah prophesying over his newly born son John says this, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereas the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus came to guide our feet into the way of peace. What do the angels say to the shepherds at Jesus' birth? Glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace among those with whom he is pleased. So how can Jesus say, I, I, didn't, I didn't come for peace. I came for division. The angels announced he came for peace. Zechariah announced he came for peace. Jesus himself announces peace. When he sends out the 70, what does he tell them? In Luke chapter 10, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And as the son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. What does Jesus say to the sinful woman who weeps at his feet and washes them with his hair? He says, go in peace, my daughter. Here's here's what I think is going on. There is a sense in which Jesus brings peace. There's one sphere, if you will, one domain to which Jesus absolutely comes to bring peace, and there's another domain to which Jesus does not come to bring peace, but division. And he's speaking about the one, not the other. So point A here, Jesus came to bring peace and to bring division in two separate spheres. In one arena, in one domain, he came to bring peace. Make no mistake. In another arena, he came to bring conflict and division and a sword. What are those domains? Well, point one here, peace between God and man. Peace between God and man. That, that's the peace uniformly in Luke that we're seeing because we are at enmity with God. We are in hostility with God. We are his enemies. As Jesus has already said, God is sorely provoked and in one sense eager to pay best back. Eager to pour out the fire of his wrath. And yet Jesus comes to give peace with God. Romans 5.1 summarizes the gospel this way. Therefore since we've been justified by faith we have peace with God. And so the announcements of peace in Luke's gospel are always between man and God. Turn turn back to Luke chapter 7. Turn back to Luke chapter 7. Then we see a good example of this. 47 through 50. What type of peace does Jesus bring? He brings peace between God and man. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this? We even forgive sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you Go in peace. It's unmistakable. The peace that Jesus announces is vertical peace with God. Her sins are forgiven. Go in peace. What Jesus is talking about here, and here's point two, is even though He came to bring peace between God and man, He also came to bring division between man and man. He came to bring division between man and man. If you stay here in Luke 7, I think you see that. In fact, in the very act of announcing forgiveness and peace on this woman, what does he create? Grumbling. Hostility from the Pharisees. His very act of making peace with this woman creates conflict and hostility horizontally with his dinner guests and host. In fact, a little earlier, in Luke's Gospel, in chapter in, sorry, chapter 7, verse 34, what's the accusation at they're beginning to make against Jesus? The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus' very act of making peace between men and God, women and God, is the very thing that's creating the hostility horizontally with other men. So Jesus comes to bring peace between men and God, but His very act of coming is the very thing that will create conflict horizontally among people. That's the point. Division between man and man. And then Jesus makes an explicit example. Now earlier in chapter 12, we saw Jesus back in verse 10 sorry, not 10, verse 11 of chapter 12, speak of the conflict we'd have um, at sort of a legal society level. They will bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you to say. So he's already told them about the conflicts they'll have with the political leaders and the conflicts they'll have with the community and religious leaders. But here, going to the other end of the spectrum, Jesus makes it clear this division He brings between man and man will penetrate to the most tight and normally undividable relationships in life. Family relationships. Relationships between parents and child. That Christ will make a division there. And the reason that is, is because, point one, Jesus demands our absolute loyalty that exceeds the closest earthly bonds. Jesus demands our absolute loyalty that exceeds the closest earthly bonds. Because that, that's, that's the way things work. When you can see the conflict's coming, you've got a choice, right? You can, either, you can either hold fast to your convictions, hold fast to what's right, weather the storm, deal with the conflict, or you can cave. And sometimes we avoid conflict by, by not saying what we should say, not doing what we should do. And where is that stronger of a desire than in one's family? I want to get peace in my family. And what Jesus is saying, no, no, if you're my disciples, if you're confessing before men. That also means you'll be willing to suffer the displeasure of your mother, your father, your son, your daughter, to even make them your enemies. And I don't think this is hyperbole. I don't think at all that this is hyperbole. To turn back to Exodus, please, 32. I know we're jumping around a bit this morning, but turn back to Exodus 32. I don't think this is hyperbole one bit. There is a line of continuity that we see in Scriptures of what Jesus demands of His would-be followers. And it is constant throughout Scripture. Scripture. What Lord demands. And so this is the story of the, the golden calf, and the people broke out and they worshiped the calf. And Moses comes down and, and first he smashes the calf in verse 20 and, dis, and, and pours the, the gold dust in the water and makes the people drink it. But he's not done. He goes to Aaron and asks him what happened. Aaron has a lame excuse I threw the gold into the fire and then the, the, the calf jumped down. Verse 24. That's what he said. The sin makes you stupid, and you have to say something. Now, we'll pick it up in verse 25. I, mean, I, don't, I, I don't know if you thought that was going to work. My kids try things like that with me. but um, When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Now, all the sons of Levi gathered around him. This is going to be a defining moment for the tribe of Levi. Now, watch what happens here. He said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. That's not hyperbole. That's That's command. What he's saying is "The tribe believe I. You start at one end of the camp with a sword in your hand and you walk from one side to the other and you cut down and you strike down everyone who you come across. Just imagine that. And he makes it clear. I, I don't care if you come across your brother. I don't care if you come across your father, your mother, your wife, your children. They're going down. Now only God has the authority to give a command like this. And only God's appointed leader, Moses, has the authority to relay it. And I am so very thankful that Christ's kingdom right now is not of this world, and so we're not called to pick up swords. We're not called to meter out this type of justice. But notice what he's demanding of is a loyalty from Levi that exceeds all other loyalties. And amazingly, verse 28, the sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell, and Moses said to them, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that you might bestow a blessing upon you this day. You ever wonder how Levi got singled out to be the tribe of priests to God? This is why. This is how they attained their priesthood. And Moses references that in Deuteronomy 33. You can turn back to Luke. I'll, I'll read this. In Deuteronomy 33, Moses has a closing song. and As he goes through his closing song at the end of his life, He references each of the tribes by name, and he picks up on this in Deuteronomy 33, 8 through 9. And of Levi, he said, this is Moses speaking in his song, give to Levi your thumen and your ermine. That's that's the priestly garbs, the accoutrements with the, the 12 stones on them. Your godly one whom you tested at Massah, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. So they leave Egypt. What type of loyalty does God require of his priests? That level of loyalty. And Jesus shows up, and he demands the same thing. That's why Jesus can say a little later in Luke 14, anyone who comes after me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He doesn't ultimately need to hate them. What he's saying is your allegiance, your loyalty to him is so great that second place looks like hate in comparison. Jesus demands our absolute loyalty that exceeds the closest earthly bonds. This also means something else. We need to prepare for and expect this division. We need to prepare for and expect this division. Division. Now, I think, in an abstract sense, we get this. And so, when we hear about Muslims coming to faith in Christ, we understand and we get that in a Muslim community, frequently, a conversion to Christianity might invite an honor killing. Will likely invite a family disowning. Right? We get that. We're like, oh, that's that's the cost of following Christ. We understand that. But that's far removed and out there. But I, I submit to you, Jesus says this is going to happen from now on. It's going to happen. And so we should expect it, and we should prepare for it as well. How, how does that happen? I think it happens in one of two ways. I think it happens when families are made up of believers and unbelievers, and, and the believers in the family are gonna have different values from the unbelievers. I, I, know of, I know of marriages where a husband or a wife's faith is precisely the reason there's conflict in the marriage. I know a dear brother who's been laboring in that situation with conflict and division in the home precisely because of his loyalty to Christ. That can happen that way. It can also happen when a family is made up of believers of different sorts and some are being disobedient and sinful. And the temptation is, do we press the issue? Do we call them out? Call them to repentance? Or do we just make for Peace. I think there's all sorts of ways that if we're faithful to Christ, we, we can invite division and hostility in our family. And here's the thing I want you to get. Jesus doesn't do bait and switch. He is up front with this. And frequently what I see and hear from people when these types of decisions come up is, normally you're right. Normally I wouldn't go to that wedding. Normally I wouldn't give approval of this thing. Normally I would call the person on this thing. But it's my family. It's my wife. It's my son. It's my daughter my brother it's my sister and i just want peace in the home get this jesus understands this is gonna be difficult and i understand it's gonna be difficult it's not negotiable it's not a gray area he says flat out this is what's going to happen if you're loyal to me flat out and a little later in chapter 14 he's going to make it really clear Anyone who comes after me does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life cannot be my disciple. For unwilling to endure this type of division, if it's too hard for us, if we can't stomach it, we cannot be his disciple. He says that in no uncertain turns in Luke 14, 26 and 27. We should expect it. We should prepare for it. Now, the, the, the emphatic nature with which I'm saying this, I don't for a second think it's going to be easy. I get that. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. It is going to be. It will happen. And we need to have a stomach for it. We need to have counted the cost and prepared for it so that when it comes, we don't collapse and back down and simply do for the things that make peace. A false peace. Now, Jesus has stated why He came. And He stated that He came to judge he came to suffer, he came to divide. And what he's preparing to do, and we'll see next week as we finish out chapter 12, is he's, he's really insisting to people, he's insisting us, we've got to choose a side. And we're either all in or we're not in at all. We're either all in or not in at all. You've got to choose a side. You're either going to be that faithful servant or you're going to be the servant who's cut into pieces. You either receive a blessing or you are gonna receive a curse. You're either for Jesus or against Jesus. We've seen that. Your loyalty ultimately lies with Him or with something else. And, and I love the fact that Jesus does not bait and switch. So often in our modern evangelism, we don't mention anything about suffering. We don't mention anything about self-denial. We don't mention anything about persecution. We just emphasize the positives. And then people make a profession of faith and then things start to get tough persecution comes and the seed that was sown in the rocky soil withers and dies or they become consumed with the world and the seed that was sown among thorns dies jesus had no problem telling crowds thousands upon thousands these hard sayings it doesn't mean we always say that but when these are types of things we should and can and will be saying as it is appropriate and i know this type of teaching stretches our understanding of who Jesus is. And it's not the whole story of who He is, and it's not the whole story of why He came. But by God's grace, we will receive and embrace and add this to our understanding of who He is. By God's grace, we will, because we are spared the fire that is coming, precisely because Jesus was baptized with the baptism which He received of the Father's wrath, our part in this is being willing to, not moving away from not creating conflict unnecessarily, but not being surprised when it comes in our families. Make no mistake, Christ will save you from your sin. He will give you peace with God. But He makes no promises about peace in your family. In fact, if anything, He says we should expect conflict. And he'll be with us. He'll strengthen us through that. But He's upfront about it. This isn't the fine print. This is Jesus speaking to thousands upon thousands, making it clear what they must be willing to do to follow Him. by God's grace, we will make that commitment, and we will be willing to do that as well. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a hard word, hard teaching, but Lord, just as your Son did not flinch and turn away from what you called him to, the cross, let us not flinch and turn away when faithfulness to you breeds conflict in our homes. Let us not Be unwilling, to endure the shame of Christ. For He endured the shame of the cross. Lord God, give us the faith to receive this, to endure this. And Lord, for those who are already experiencing the conflict in their homes and their marriages and their families that comes from being faithful to You, I pray that You would give them strength, that You would give them comfort, that You would, their inner man, strengthen them by your spirit, that the body would be to them fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. Lord God, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are